Welcome to Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com, a place to talk about the experiences that we call life. We'll share the sorrow and the joy that makes this earthy existence real and makes us who we are. Now, here's your host, Renee Steelman. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so thrilled uh, to have my guest today, to be able to chat with my guest today. I can hardly contain myself. I have been reading her book for the last few days, and I am blown away. Uh, you have got, you are going to be so thrilled when you listen to this, and you are going to want to run out as I did and purchase her book, uh, Free Range Kids, right away. But let me start out by just telling you that um, a few weeks ago, I was listening to an interview with uh, Judy Bloom. And she made a comment. She was talking about her childhood and how she and I believe a sister, I can't remember a friend, how they had ridden a bus into the city. And she was just talking a little bit about her childhood because they were talking about her books that, you know, appealed to the, to the youth. And she made, she used the comment, you know, back in those days when we were free range, chi- free range kids or free range children. And I remember thinking, that's a Fabulous. I love that term, free-range kids or free-range children. And then, again, I'm listening to... See, when you get old, you just listen to talk radio. I know that. That's the way it is. So I'm listening to another talk radio show. And I'm listening to this interview, and I'm listening to this woman being interviewed, and I'm thinking, well, that's odd. I've never heard of her before. What? And she has written this book, Free-Range Kids. So I immediately, I get on, I start Googling, and I start... I was blown away. Lenore, thank you for joining me today. Let thank me you tell for the, that. Oh <laughs> my gosh. Let, Renee. Wow. <laughs> let me tell the, the listeners a little bit about you. You are the, the world's worst and you have been titled the America's worst mom. Um, you are a New York City newspaper columnist turned reality TV show host. And um, this whole title and your label all came about because you let your nine-year-old son take the subway alone. And then you actually wrote a column about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I wish all my columns went viral like that, yes. <laughs> no, you, ta- you talk in your book about how this article came out in the newspaper and it was almost... Like immediately, your phone started ringing. It was incredible. It was um, so the the story. It just it's eight years ago, seven or eight years ago already at this point. Um, but I wrote why I let my nine year old take the subway alone, and I live in New York, so taking the subway is just what we do all the time. We don't have a car. Um, but the article came out on a Tuesday, and by Thursday, I was on the Today Show, MSNBC. Fox News, and for contrast, NPR, <laughs> which has been, it's, it's been so interesting since then because it really is, it doesn't have a political angle. I mean, there's people who follow me on Twitter who are, um, you know, very conservative and then ultra liberal, and, and it doesn't matter because the point is not what your political um, viewpoint is, but whether you think that kids deserve the kind of freedom that Judy Bloom apparently was talking about, the kind of freedom we had as kids to, to go outside and have some adventures and not be constantly under supervision and surveillance. Yeah, exactly. And I, I loved, um, well, I loved all of your chapters. I love your commandments that you, that you <laughs> title your chapters with your 14 commandments of free-range right. children. Like the but, uh, 
Yeah, and I um, and I just found myself shaking my head and going, uh-huh, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> and I think that you and I are around the same age. So everything yeah, if that you're, you you're brought up... Talk radio age, yes, I'm that yeah. age too. <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, I don't know why. It's like, how did the music slowly turn to NPR? It, it just happened. How did it all turn to like, I, you know, and I'll find myself sometimes like I will be cooking and NPR will be on in the background and I literally cannot understand a word they're saying <laughs> because, you know, the blender's going or the coffee pot is percolating or something like that. Percolating, that shows how old I am. There you <laughs> so, go. <laughs> really? How long since coffee percolated? I don't think anybody knows, uh, you know. Anyway, the point is that it doesn't really matter even if I hear what they're saying. I just want the soothing sound of somebody else talking. Yes, yes. It's it's because I remember my mother actually she would fall asleep. She told me she had a hard time sleeping, Mm -hmm. so she fell asleep Mm -hmm. by uh, she had little headphones on with her little uh, probably Walkman, you know, (laughs) listening to talk radio. And I remember going, "Oh, mom, it's so sad." (laughs) You know, and now there I am. Here I am. You're sad. Yeah. Yeah. But everything that you mentioned in your book, because we're about the same age, everything that you mentioned in your book, those are the exact same references that I make to my children. The Adam Mm -hmm. Walsh kidnapping. I remember Mm -hmm. when that happened. Mm -hmm. And then the, um, the Halloween candy scare. I remember when that came, you know, and so you bring up in your book the statistics that back up all of these scares. And so, Tell and and actually, yeah, refute all of the scares. Is, yes, is, is yes. Thing. Yeah, no, I think one of my favorite statistics in the book, and I realize statistics don't really change anyone because your brain yeah. works like Google, and if you can bring up a picture of something, it matters a whole lot versus numbers, which are hard to, you know, it's like, what's the difference between one in a hundred and one in a million? Most people don't feel the difference. But right. I will say that the, the, the statistic that um, blew me away when I learned it was I asked uh, an author and, I guess, statistician in England to crunch for me how long you would have to put your children outside, how long they would have to stay outside unsupervised for them to be statistically likely to be kidnapped. Because it's sort of like how many um, how many tickets you would have to buy for the lottery before you would be statistically right. likely to win the lottery. And the number was, how long would you have to keep your kids outside? Of course, maybe you'll remember from the book. But if you uh, it was like seven... Thousand five hundred, something like that. Yeah, it was seven hundred. Yeah. It was, was seven hundred and fifty. It was either seven hundred or six hundred fifty thousand years. Yeah, <laughs> for, yeah. For it to be statistically likely, but of course it feels extremely likely because you turn on your TV and there will always be a story from somewhere. And and if it isn't a story that's happened, you know, in the last week or a month, it will be like you say, you know, a reference to Adam Walsh. Or a reference to Eitan Pats or to Elizabeth Smart or to John Benet Ramsey, something that happened so long ago. Um, and yet, you know, you say, are children safe outside? And up comes the picture of um, Elizabeth Smart or, or Eitan Pats, and you think, oh, no, they're not safe. Remember that story because it's so easy to remember stories. Right. And, and I love in your book, uh, what I love about your book is you, you back everything up with with statistics, with, you know, things that people love. People love to say, well, I read this or I, you know, I read this, you know, a column by a, by a professional. And so you back everything up that you say. And I love what you said about how Elizabeth Smart was made the child abduction specialist now oh, for yeah. CNN radio. Right, right, right. Like there's news, weather, sports, and child abductions. Like, like, like child abductions are as likely as a storm front. You know, or as likely as high humidity. I mean, when you make them part of the mix, 
it sounds so common. And actually, I was reading some other book about how the brain works or something like that. I can't remember what it was um, because my brain isn't working that well anymore because of <laughs> the aforementioned age. Yeah. Um, but, but one of the things that was also intriguing to me is that when you have a horrific story um, of, say, a kidnapping, you know, or a murder or a train wreck or whatever, and the next thing you see on TV is an ad for bounty towels or an ad for, um, I don't know, Oscar Mayer Wiener or American Airlines or anything like that, it, it feels like it's also just part of the mix. It's like just as common, you know, just as like, oh, another ad for Coke, oh, another child abduction. It just becomes... It seems like it's part of the, the, the weave of everyday life, even though, of course, it's not. But it's, it's in there with the other things that we see every day. And so it feels like we're seeing those every day. Right, right. And, and, I, and, I re, and you kind of just reinforced, I, I had heard this concept before, the, the way our brains work. And you talked about that in your book, about how um, even if you're, if you're watching a movie and and it's one of these scary you know oh kind of you know mission impossible type movies even even though you know that you're sitting in a theater and you know that you're looking at a screen <laughs> right when yeah. when something happens you still jump and you startle and you right. close your eyes and your body doesn't know the difference between reality and the fact that you're watching a movie so the fact that we Which is constantly, yeah, but we, right, yeah, the fact that we constantly, I mean, basically, if you turn on the news, you're going to see the very worst things that have come, um, that have happened anywhere in the world that we've sent a, a news crew to, and then you wait a little longer, and then on comes, of course, Law and Order, inevitably, on comes yes. Law and Order, as if by the Law and Order itself, and um, you know what your brain is doing. You know, the brain has been around for as long as humanity, but. Video and photography have only been around as long as, um, let's say, you know, video, like a hundred years, or, or moving yeah. pictures for about a hundred years, and still photography, maybe sixty or seventy years before that. And um, it used to be that any picture that your mind had in it was something that was outrageously relevant and um, and nearby, because that was the only things that would happen. You'd see somebody eat a plant and die, and your brain would say, "Never eat that plant again." You know, so it was. It was good that it took in visual information and kept it stored for you as warning, warning, you have to be aware of this. But now we get these pictures from all over the world. We have the picture of the lion, you know, has been yeah. in our brains for this past week. And there was another tragedy in California. And, and then all the things that also come in, like you say, from the scary movies or the scary television shows, all these are images. Images are really, really powerful. And they're all in our brains in the file under worry. Because our brain evolved to take pictures in that show us something scary and hang on to them and keep us worried. And so when I talk about how, you know, we're sort of overestimating danger today and constantly underestimating kids, the overestimation of the danger is because we have all these images that have piled up, most of which are absolutely irrelevant to our, our, our daily lives. You know, a plane goes down in, over the you know, Malaysia Airlines goes down over the Indian Sea, and it's in our brain. Like, ooh, scary, even though right. it's as far from our regular lives as could be. Right, right. And that's and I and I love the correlation that you also mentioned about how you know it. it, it you have to balance and equalize somehow the danger and then the judgment that is now so prevalent, especially the mommy wars that have come up. And I loved your chapter on the judgment that's made on other parents and yeah. how there's this um, talk a little bit about, because I loved how you correlated the timeline 
between the you know the kidnapping and then this this severe you know thing that we think we have control over what's going to happen to our children and then the actual reality of how much control we have and then the judgment that we're maybe even more concerned about um, well here's the deal i mean actually when i first wrote that first article and i was trying to explain like why i would let my kids do things outside on their own um I just was talking to some friends, and one was a, a dad, and he said, you know, I'm with you, I understand what you're saying, I understand the, uh, you know, the real odds are totally in our favor, I just don't want to be the guy on, and this was seven years ago, he said, on Larry King, now I guess it would be Anderson Cooper, um, yeah. saying, you know, I turn my back for one minute, and, and because people are afraid of that kind of blame, like, why weren't you with her, where, where were the parents, um, yes. we're afraid of both something terrible happening, and then also uh, it seems like the kind of society we'd like to live in, which is empathic and caring, um, has evaporated uh, with the idea that because we can control so many things, we think we can control everything. So, for instance, because we can have our kids on their cell phones and they can tell us where they are. I was about to blog today about um, these new uh, school buses they're getting in Pittsburgh that are in constant touch with the parents. They let the parents know, okay, your child has boarded the bus, and your child has not boarded the bus yet, and now we have deposited your child off the bus, and we're at the corner of Maine and 34th now, or whatever. So it feels like because we can be almost omniscient about our kids, that if anything bad happens, it's because we, we, you know, we, we, we nodded off on the job, or we slacked off. And so... The idea that if something terrible would happen, like if, if I ran away from my mom at the fair when I was a little kid, which um, many kids do, mm-hmm. uh, I think that if my mom was telling the story later or if the police brought me back, they, they would be saying like, oh, you know, kids, they never listen to their parents. Remember, don't leave your mommy, daughter, you know, right. Lenore. And now it's like, why weren't you paying attention? Where was she? Why didn't you give her a phone? Why didn't you tattoo your phone number on her arm? Why didn't you, um, you know, have somebody come with you if there's two children? Because then you can't watch them, you know, well enough without somebody else with you. And so, so I feel like because we're so afraid for our kids, we almost um, always blame the parents the way we used to blame rape victims. Like, right. you know, somebody would get raped. You'd say, oh, she was asking for it. Oh, I would never wear that. You know, that skirt was so short. You know, that's all her fault. And then gradually we realized, no, excuse me, nobody asks to get raped. And similarly, mm-hmm. nobody asks for something terrible to happen to their children. But we used to blame rape victims because we were so scared. It was the easiest way to say, I'm not them. It'll never happen to me because I will never walk in that neighborhood. And now we say, oh, this will never happen to me because I pay attention to my child or I don't let my child go anywhere by herself or I'm a better mom. And so I think the blame comes from fear. And right. I think that if we reached out and recognized that we are not in control, I can't tell you whether it's God or fate, but there's something in control and it's not us. <laughs> and yeah. if we could only go back to recognizing that, I think there'd be a lot more sympathy for especially the parents um, of, of kids who have you know, had anything bad happened to them. And also right. it would allow us to relax a little because it's not like we're going to have this double whammy of something bad happening and then everybody backing away saying it's all your fault. Right, right. And I know, you know, when you were on the um, the radio show that I, that I first was introduced to you, you mm-hmm. talked a little bit about the boys that were lost, at, you know, in North Carolina. And since that first broadcast, which I think was just Monday... Uh, or maybe it was last Monday? No, I think it was this Monday. You mean the boys in the, in the boat? 
Yeah, and how they've been now they've been found. They and have? yes, I just saw yesterday they were they were rescued, they've been found and um but one are of them sure? are... because because there was a, um because there was a similar case from 10 years ago and it started circulating that 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 um blog post started circulating again, boys found after six days, but it was a 10-year-old blog post. And so I'm hoping that you're right that they were found now. But it's okay, interesting. That it's, um, you know, sort of false hope. I really, really yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, now I'm going to have to go back and look at it. But I, I liked what people were saying, though, when they were, like you say, first thing they do is get the parents on there. Why would, you know, why did you let your kids go out? But people who live in that part of the world were talking about how their children grow up on the water. Their children are trained. Right, right, they know right. how to swim before they know how to walk. Right, they know no, how it's to like, walk. it's like my kid taking the subway or it's like a kid in the suburb riding a bike to the library. I mean, if it's normal life. And remember, 14, sometimes I ask people, and I give a lot of lectures, sometimes I ask, like, what age? were your ancestors when they came here? I know that my grandparents were in their teens, and they were coming, you know, they weren't going out for an afternoon on a boat ride. They were, they had taken all the money that they had saved from their lives to get on a rickety boat and cross the Atlantic Ocean and arrive in a country where they had no language and no money and uh, and really not a lot of skills, if you're talking about a 14-, 15-, 16-year-old boy or girl, and start right. a new life. So the idea that like no 14-year-old should ever be doing anything by themselves is is a new one. And it really, I mean, one of the things that galls me so much about our culture today is how we we think nothing of underestimating our kids. We we venerate, you know, the the other generations. We Huck Finn and uh, you know the, the the Abernathy boys who went from I think Kansas to New York City by themselves on a on a on horses and at ages 10 and 6. I mean, we love the idea of this can-do pioneering spirit in everybody except our own children. And it seems strange because you want the very best for your kids and yet you're already underestimating them. Exactly. And I like it. I like how you mentioned even themselves. I mean, when you when you would talk to mothers, you would say, how old were you when you first started babysitting? And they will say, oh, I was 10. I was 12. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I slept overnight at, at this lady's house and I helped with mm-hmm. her children. And then, and then you ask them, and does your child babysit? Does, oh, heavens no. I would never yeah. let my child, you know. And not only not let their children babysit, some moms I spoke to, um, would not, would insist on a babysitter for their children at the same age that they were babysitting. You know, right. that somebody, and, and it's not just, I mean, I don't want to get down on parents because I feel like if you're living in a sort of a, a world that's polluted with fear, it's not surprising right. that you would breathe it in and it becomes part of every fiber of your being. I mean, when you're talking about 12-year-olds, in Rhode Island last year, uh, four legislators there proposed a new law that would make it illegal for a school bus to drop off any child under seventh grade without an adult there to walk them home. So we're wow. talking about kids 12 years old um, until you're 12 or 13. You could not get off a school bus and walk, even if it was two houses or two blocks or whatever. It's not like the, the the bus stops have suddenly, you know, gone miles and miles from people's homes. It's it's this new idea that nothing is safe enough. It's it's a hysterical society um, because crime rise actually crime rate today is lower than when we were growing up. The crime rate is back to what it was in 1963. Um, wow! You know, it's just it's before color television. That's what the rate we're at. But anyways, um, thank God that law ended up not being passed. But the fact that four um, people that we elected, or at least that Rhode Island elected, 
would even suggest something like that is it's so out of whack. I mean, first of all, somebody would have to quit their job in every home so that they could be there between 3 and 3.30 and, you know, sometimes bus a little late, 3 and 3.45, waiting right. for the bus to walk so that they could be there. Otherwise, the kid is not released. And it's, um, you know, that's a decision that normally, A, should be made by the parent, and B, most neighborhoods, I'm not saying every neighborhood, you know the neighborhoods where it's not safe to walk home, but most neighborhoods in America, it is. And right. so why would we make it into a crime? Well, you make it into a crime if you're so hysterical that you think that any time a child is not supervised in public, they are going to die. I mean, really, it's, it's I hate to put it that baldly, but that's really what we're afraid of every right. single time. Right, right. And I love what you said about how you had that mother who had these children and someone made the comment to her that they were like pedophile candy. And that put this fear oh, into yeah. her, you know, that she from that point on didn't, you know, and you see that or you'll hear people say that, oh, you have such a, uh, you know, pretty little girl or, oh, you better watch her. And and yeah, uh, it, it, it does. It just it's absolutely. And how do you react, Lenore, to the people who compare the United States to Europe, like uh, everything that you reference in your book, I have referenced myself when mm-hmm. I talk to my children. Example was the story that you told about the the woman who was in the United States visiting from Denmark and left her child outside in a pram. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and, actually, yeah, I have another. I, I have my favorite story from the book is a different one from that. But the one that happened in New York City was a mom was visiting with her kid from Denmark, and in Denmark. She, she did what uh, she would do in Denmark, what she proceeded to do here in New York City, which was leave her kid asleep in the stroller while she went into cafe to have dinner. And, of course, somebody seeing the child unsupervised, again, leaps from, um, you know, child alone means child about to be, you know, kidnapped or murdered. And they called the police and the mom ended up and actually her husband, um, they both end, not her husband, the, the, the baby daddy. She was back visiting the baby daddy. She lived in Denmark. He lived in New York. They were both thrown in jail for three days. By the way, so what happens to the kid for the three days that the parents are in jail? But nonetheless, um, you know, if you're worried about parents not being around their kids and then you've just taken them right. away. And she was allowed to leave if she promised never to come back and do that again. But in Denmark, it's normal to have your kids in a stroller outside because the assumption is not, once again, that any time a child isn't literally next to you, your child is going to be kidnapped. We really have this outrageous assumption of danger in every situation. But the, the, the story that you reminded me of when you said Europe was about a, an American family that was living in Sweden. And um, there were four kids. And while they were living in Sweden, one of the girls was 13 years old. And they were in a small town about 100 kilometers from uh, Stockholm. And the, the field trip for the kids, and I think they were 13-year-olds, was the, the whole class was going down to Stockholm for the day. So they took the train down there, and they saw the sights in the morning. And then the teacher said, okay, it's lunchtime. Go find lunch. Wander around. Be back here at 4. We're all going to take the train back up. So that was it, right? Free time, big city, nobody um, watching over you. You simply have to be aware of the time and get back here so that we can all go back, um, back to this small town in Sweden when you're done. So that was normal life and a normal assumption of um, responsibility on the part of these 13-year-olds in Sweden. 
Then the family moves back to actually Illinois, where um, you and I are both originally from. And they moved to Lake Forest, which is it's the place where they put ordinary people. You know, the movie Ordinary People is shot there. It's, it's oh yeah, family. yeah, yeah. It's it's a very right. very wealthy town. It's like it's the one percent right. of the one percent. And right. um, and by this time, another one of her daughters was thirteen years old, and the school was having um, a, a park picnic. So they were the the kids were having fun, and her daughter got a nosebleed. And it was all the blood was all over her shirt. And she said, well, can I just go home? I mean, I live just a mile up this road. If that um, I can go and get some, you know, change my clothes and come back and I'll be back here by the end of the afternoon for sure. You know, it's just a mile up and a mile back. And the teacher said, oh, my God, no, no, no. Somebody must take you there. And there was nobody available to take her. And uh, her mother was working uh, an hour's drive away. And so she had to frantically call. Finally, she found a neighbor who was willing to come to the park, pick her up, drive her home for the three minutes, change her shirt, and drive her back. But the the school, for either um, you know legal reasons or insurance reasons or just protocol, absolutely could not let a child, you know, even a 13-year-old, be on her own for an hour. Absolutely right. not. Even on her right. own block. I mean, she was going up the block a mile and then down. Right. And that was yeah. unheard of. And that, to me, is... Not creating a country where, you know, with this can-do spirit, it's a can-don't spirit. I mean, uh, you know, the idea that, um, you know, that all our children are too incompetent. Um, A lot of parents sometimes say, um, you know, I'd like to let my kid go out. It's not that I don't trust them. It's I don't trust the world. But that's what we're talking about is the world. I mean, to not trust your child in the world is to not trust your child in the world. It's it's other piece. And I love, and I think the best, the best example of that is the chapter which, which I just celebrate because my Halloween is my favorite holiday oh, and yeah. everything that you talked about, about how we, you know, wave and we say hi and we take yeah. over cookies to our right. neighbors. But right. on October 31st, 31st, they turn somehow, into psychopaths, child yeah. killing, candy poisoning psychopath next door. And, Actually, um, first of all, let's just get straight that that has never happened. No child has been um, poisoned by a stranger's candy on Halloween ever. And I say this not as my own research, but the research of a man named Joel Best, who is a sociologist at the University of Delaware. And I've spoken to him many times. Back when I was just a regular old reporter, I would interview him around uh, Halloween. And the way he found out that this had never happened is he went back to um, the newspapers from 1958 or 59. And he would read the New York Times and I think the Chicago Tribune and maybe the L.A. Times or whatever for the days of November 1st, November 2nd, November 3rd, every year for all the years since the 50s. And there was never a story of a child poisoned by a stranger's candy, which would have made the the national press had that happened. Um, He did find one story. I think it was in the 60s. Yeah. Maybe it was the 70s. I can't remember. Of a guy in Texas who did... Um, put strychnine in the pixie sticks. Um, And then he gave the pixie stick to his son, and his son died. And I think he assumed that there's so many kids being poisoned by so much candy on Halloween, who's going to even notice one more? But since, in fact, his was the only child who died of poison candy uh, the next day after Halloween, uh, the police came knocking at his door. They saw that he had taken out three insurance policies on his son, one of them right before Halloween. 
on his like 11 year old kid and he went uh, he didn't go to the electric chair I believe he had a um, lethal injection because this was Texas and he was executed yeah yeah so yep. um, but when I've spoken with Joel best he says he's given up in a way and uh, there's something odd about our culture in that he's been giving the same interviews with reporters like me for about 30 years now on how there has been no case of a child poisoned by Halloween candy. And it always comes as a surprise. I mean, yeah. reporters are surprised. Readers are surprised. When I, when you read the chapter on, you know, you don't have to worry about Halloween, uh, you know, people are still surprised. And so there's something that loves a horror story, especially when it right. happens to children. I mean, it's there's something that we must love about it. It's like, it's like a fairy tale we tell ourselves every year. And that is something I don't quite understand, why we like to think the worst, why we love this little chill that goes up our spine when we think about our neighbors as not being, you know, like you must immediately throw out the, the, the chocolate chip cookie that Mrs. Smith gave you, even though we go to Mrs. Smith's house, you know, when she's ill and we bring her soup. But now you have to throw it out because somehow she's decided to poison you. Exactly. It's a weird well, obsession. It, it is a weird obsession. And, Lenore, Thank you so much for taking this time. Please, everyone, you have got to get free-range kids. Um, Lenore, tell everyone the best way. Amazon, what is the best way to get their hands on your book? It's so easy. First of all, it's on Amazon. But the point is that I also have a blog by the same name, which is free-range kids, and a Twitter feed, which is free-range kids, and the book is free-range kids. And, you know, if there was another medium, I'm sure I'd be free-range kids on this. Yeah. So, so I'm easy to find, and every day, pretty much every day, I blog about something that I think is of general interest, sort of in, you know, it's not a parenting site. It's not going to tell you how to get your kids to eat their broccoli. Um, I have a kid here now who's 19 who I can't get to eat his broccoli. Um, so it's really more about how did we get so afraid as a culture, particularly about our children, and then um, what happens when this sort of leaks into policy, like, like the Rhode Island story I was telling, and right. what happens when it turns us against our neighbors, that we start tr- distrusting them? And, and how can we get back to um, a more open, trusting, caring, and less blaming society? Because I think we'd all be happier, um, not just our kids, but us as adults. We'd all be happier if we didn't have to go around so worried all the time for our children and for um, people turning on us. Exactly, exactly. It's a it's a wonderful read, and I, I, I have been following you on your blog, and and just kind of amening everything that you say. It's like, amen, yes. And, uh, and I would love Renee. Yeah, that's great. Exactly, exactly. I, that's my new title. That's my new title. Right. Amen, Renee. That's right. Well, have a, have a wonderful rest of the day. You live in the most beautiful city. Uh, new York City is my home away from home. Oh, great. Uh, you can come I visit. Love it. Come. I love it. I actually oh. come and sleep here. I mean, really, I like, I like being open. So, yes, come visit. Oh, I would love to. I would love to. I will take you up on that, I'm sure. All right. Thank you so much, Lenore. Thanks, Renee. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, my gosh. That was just absolutely wonderful. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about having free-range children. And and what do you think about having letting your kids go to the park by themselves? I've already polled a few of my friends, and uh, you know their comments were never. So let's take a break. Now, 
Now, back to Renee Steelman for more Heaven Sent and Bent on TalkZone.com. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for joining me again. That was a wonderful, I wish I would have had more time to talk with Lenore. Um, I really encourage you to type in Free Range Kids, Google Lenore, uh, watch her interview. She did a, a really funny interview with um, John Stewart on The Daily Show. Um, just hilarious. But her book is is really, it's it's done so well. She has a lot of facts to back up her opinion. It's humorous. It's enlightening. It's wonderful. And to go along with uh, what Lenore was saying, I have brought on two experts uh, on what it was like to grow up as a free-range kid, to grow up in an era where you were allowed to go outside and play, that you were encouraged to. In fact, you were pretty much commanded to go outside and play. And these two experts, one of them I have known my entire life, and the other one I've known for about 53 years of my life. And these wonderful people are my mom and dad. So I would like to introduce you to Alan and Reen Cathcart, my mom and dad. And we're going to have a wonderful conversation about what it was like to grow up in a world where you weren't terrified to drink the milk, you weren't terrified to go to the store with your brothers and sisters, where you spent all day long outside, and you even maybe even had to work. So, Mom and Dad, how are you guys this morning? Well, we're good. We're very good. It's fun to talk to you. Yeah, it is. Thank you guys for doing this for me. But I, we have had so many wonderful conversations. And, Mom, I know that I had the 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 freedom to be able to, you know, get my costume on, including horrifically, I'm almost afraid to tell the world that I at one point wore a mask on Halloween. And I, and, and I was allowed to trick-or-treat throughout our whole neighborhood with my brother. And we just had a great time. And the people weren't afraid back in those days, were they? No, not at all. You were totally, totally free to do whatever you wanted. As long as you followed the rules, be home by such and such a time and be be within calling distance and and I knew where you were and where, you know who you were with. Yep, exactly. And I remember you telling us that you know we just had to be home when the cars turned on their lights because that was dusk. That's right. And that's what and we would as do. As far as Halloween goes, uh, you had the fun of making up your own costume and probably spent the whole day before you know of Halloween preparing your costume. I didn't have anything to do with it. But nowadays, people go out and buy their costumes. For the children, right. and the children wear them all year round. So, yeah, uh, that was half the fun was making up your own costumes and getting together yeah. with your friends. Right, and I don't, you know, and I don't remember, you know, as a child having you have to bring my costume to the school to wear for an hour. I mean, we would bring our costumes to school and go in ba- into the bathroom and change into them and have the party. And you were at home doing your mom thing. You weren't over at the school conducting the Halloween party and making sure that I had my mask or my makeup done right. And, you know, it was all, you know, we were able to use our own imaginations and, and we felt good and we grew from that experience of, of, of accomplishment that we had by having that freedom. Yeah, that's right. honey. Yeah. So mom, talk a little bit about what it was like for you as a child growing up with your seven brothers and sisters 
and the freedom that you were able to enjoy and what kind of things you did as a child? Oh, my gosh. Pretty much whatever we wanted. We didn't have a whole lot of rules because uh, I was number seven and my my younger sister was number eight, and we were referred to as the little girls. And so by the time we got to be about six and nine, uh, our bigger brothers and sisters were were almost gone. I had uh, three brothers left at home, and we uh, there was one point in our life when we lived out in the country on the farm, and my brothers would go hunting. The 14 and 15, they'd take their guns and go hunting, and they'd often bring home what we would have for dinner that night, pheasants or whatever. And uh, there were always guns in our house. They were in the corners, and and we we knew what they were, and no, didn't give them any more thought than we did the, the stove that was sitting there. And uh, but then my younger sister and I would we would just go out and roam all day long throughout throughout the countryside. Sometimes we'd go miles, but we knew what time we had to be home, and uh, and we were we followed the rules without even being told to. Right. So, yeah, that was. So much fun. We discovered so many things, like like a pawpaw patch. We would we found we knew where the pawpaw patch was. And a lot of people might not even know what a pawpaw is, but uh, they grow wild in Illinois. And uh, and we found a, a grove of trees with a lot of pawpaws, and we'd sit there for hours eating those things. They kind of look a little bit a little bit like uh, uh, an avocado, and have that mm-hmm. same texture, but they're real sweet. And uh, or we'd find wild fruit, wild berries, and things like that. And uh, we just had total freedom. Right, right. Uh, and I, you know, even I remember as a child, you know, roaming up and down. And gosh, I couldn't have been more than four or five, roaming up and down the neighborhood, finding a, a wild patch of rhubarb and breaking oh, off yes. a piece of rhubarb. Uh-huh. And, and you know. Yeah, and and we never thought to, oh, I better go home and wash this first, or I better go home and have my mom check out this rhubarb, make sure it's okay for me to eat. And and uh, and I remember we had the wonderful couple across the street from us, the Petersons, and my brother and I would go across and knock on their door, and Mrs. Peterson would give us homemade sugar cookies. And, you know, you never said to us, now you, you are not allowed to eat Mrs. Peterson's food because we have not checked her food to make sure that there's no arsenic in it. You know, you were never worried about what Mrs. Peterson was going to give us. It was kind of a, a Norman Rockwell lifestyle, wasn't it, honey? It, yeah. it really was. And, Dad, I mean, you grew up in an even even a, a foreign environment, literally. Um, Dad grew up in London, and, 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 and you grew up during the war. So uh, tell us a little bit about how your childhood was like growing up with your city being bombed. Well, that was uh, that was when I was early teens. Uh, my my young childhood was in the big house, Hatherley, and I had three sisters, and uh, I was a I believe to be a spoiled brat. Because, <laughs> uh, the three sisters would dote on me and make sure that everything was uh, to my liking, and um, I guess. From the reports I've had uh, in in later life, that um, I I was um, a bit of a nuisance to them because <laughs> I was the only boy and they were the three girls. And um, but I remember it as being a very enjoyable uh, young free life. I mean, I, we used to 
wander around in that huge uh, yard. It was more than a yard. It was just acres of uh, land, and um, we would wander around all over it and play and do all sorts of things, all four of us together. I've got many photos of that. But uh, when we uh, gave up the house and moved to London, uh, we did so just before the war broke out. So we were in London when, in 1940, when um, when all the bombings started, and that was um, that was when I look back on it, the freedom we had then was amazing. I don't know how my mother coped with it because we would go to the shelters during the raids, and then um, when the anti-aircraft guns were shooting and they were parked in a park right opposite the house and they'd be uh, pumping these shells up into the air. Well, of course, when they exploded up there by the planes, the shrapnel that they were made from came whistling down and you could hear it. Uh, the just chunks of it coming down, whistling and then hitting the earth. And we used to run out and see who could get the largest piece. Oh. Well, some of them were red hot. And it, it was very, I mean, actually, it was dangerous. But our mothers didn't seem to worry. And I think it was just chance. I I'd never even heard of anybody getting hit by those things coming down, but you often had to wonder when I think back on it uh, how we got away with it. Right. And isn't that funny? Isn't that funny, Dad, that that you, you were literally playing with bombs and the parents nowadays, you know, they're, they're not allowed to, you know, the kids aren't allowed to uh, cut their own piece of cheese to make a cheese sandwich or uh, heat up some soup on the stove. And you guys were outside playing with leftover shrapnel that's just fallen from the sky. And, you know, uh, there was just an assumption that you had common sense, that you would take precaution because, that you know, it was assumed that you had a brain and that you could possibly use it. That's, yeah, and that's true. We and did also that, have uh, steel helmets that we wore. Oh, uh, funny. So if anything had come down... It hopefully would have stopped it going into our heads. So but, uh, you had real, you had real helmets, and my brother had to have a play helmet and play with and pretend to go outside and play army with his friends. Now, of course, nowadays that you wouldn't be able to do that because he would be using, you know, a pretend gun, and that's illegal and frowned upon. Um, but you actually were living in a real war and playing outside. With leftover bomb material, that that is just the epitome of the difference in the free range children versus today. And Dad, especially what I liked about listening to the stories of your childhood was after your dad passed away, um, you know, your mother sent you to a boarding school, and you were raised with a headmaster. And tell everyone a little bit about what it was like. At, what ten years old, a ten year old boy. Uh, and what kind of discipline you received, and what a daily, what a day was like for you at the boarding school. Well, the, 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 uh, I went at uh, eight years old um, 
to uh, Wells' house, and um, that had a very strict, very nice uh, headmaster, and he was the be-all and end-all of everything. Um, you did what he told you, and he made the rules, and you stuck to them. And if you didn't, then you got caned. And um, the canings were not very pleasant and uh, very painful. <laughs> but they uh, they stopped you doing whatever it was you were doing. Because you didn't want to go through that again, which was the whole intent of the uh, of the procedure. But um, it was a very structured uh, kind of life. Uh, we had classes that you went to, and you had to be on time. And um, you know, bedtime was on time. And in in the morning. His um, regimen for fitness was very strict. And at night, the uh, matron would... There were bathrooms where there were about six baths um, on in one room. And the matron would fill them up with water uh, before she went to bed. And then in the morning when we were woken up, we we just got into <clears throat> uh, took off our pajamas and we had to dunk in in those uh, baths which were cold. In fact, during the winter they even had a little covering of ice. Oh my god! And we, gosh. we would we would break the ice as we got in, and then we'd uh, rub down with towels and then we'd go for a long walk up a hill to a spring which had very fresh water in it and uh, we'd get a drink of that ice cold water and boy was that then we'd run down the hill to back and then have some breakfast but wow. that that was um, none of that oh yeah I hear you yeah none of that was um, um, you know uh, we were on our own but we knew we had to get up on that on that hill up to the top and turn around and come back. And you right. couldn't duck it. People, all the kids around you would make sure you didn't duck it. And um, so it was, uh, and and yet it was very easy for him to control us uh, because he was strict. But right. he was very fair, very fair and, and strict both. So, and I, I think the the best part about it is, that you look back on those days with with fond memories and love and respect that you had for this headmaster, even though today what you went through would be considered child abuse, and the poor headmaster would be serving a prison term for you know uh, you know for for assault and and whatever torture to young children at the age of eight, and and yet you learned. You had respect, and you you learned you know structure, and and mom, you kind of did the same thing. I mean, you talk about um, that you had rules, and you knew what was okay and what was not okay, and you you know tell tell everyone a little bit about what your school was like when you went to school. Did you have was your mom your uh, classroom homeroom mother, and did she help you with your homework every night? No. 
uh, what she would do whenever we would move, like, for example, when we moved from the country into town, she would always go with us the first day of school uh, and just take us there and so that we would know how to get there. And then she'd go, and, uh, of course, that's what happened to me. And uh, I was in the fourth grade, I think, by this time. And she took me to the school and, and left me. And then I uh, went to school, and we, at that time, we would walk home for lunch and then go back. And uh, when I, on my way home, I realized I didn't know how to get back home. I was lost. And, uh, but I always remembered Mom's advice, saying, the good Lord gave you a mouth, uh, gave you a mouth. Don't be afraid to use it when you need it, you know. So I remembered that, and I went up on to uh, a house and knocked on the door and said, I live such and such, but I don't know how to get home. And uh, she just laughed and said, and said, you just do this and do that. So I learned by myself how to get home, and uh, I, I didn't have any problems after that. The other thing Mom always said was, when you're out and you uh, are tempted to do something, you just ask yourself, would Mom approve? And if you think I would, then you go ahead. But if you know I wouldn't, you do not do it. And we always abided by that. There was no question. And the other thing she always used to say was when we got into our teens, she used to say, um, I have four sisters, and, and she always would tell us, if you act like a lady, you'll be treated like a lady. And so that was another thing that always stuck in my mind. And so I think the main thing that, that my mother taught me uh, was common sense. Just right. common, good old-fashioned common sense. That's what's gotten me through life. And uh, right. that's what I've abided by. And uh, so well, my yeah. life was always easy. It wasn't. I was born during the Depression. And, and so, of course, times were a lot different. Right. But, uh, I, and we were not wealthy people, but we were happy. We were a happy family. Well, and I think what, what Lenore brings up in her book, Free Range Kids, she talks a lot about that. She talks about teaching your children, uh, you know, training them and then allowing them to go out and use that training and practice what they've been taught, where, you know, nowadays they're not allowed to do that. And a lot of the pressure comes from not the parents necessarily, but the um, the litigation and the laws and other parents that are so, are so judging. And especially, Mom, when you talk about going up to a stranger's house and knocking on a door, and now what do we teach our children? We teach our children... Uh, you know, stranger danger. Don't talk to strangers. Um, yeah. And yet, back in those days, we we relied on knowing that our neighbor was there, or you know, all the children in the neighborhood. If if somebody else's mother told you to knock it off or to get out get out of that tree or something, you respected their their um, their uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Their God. their yeah, you respected their guide and their authority. You respected their authority just as you would your own parents. And and your parents respected their authority. So if you were to come home and say, you know, Mrs. Jones told me to get out of her tree, your parents would say, well, if Mrs. Jones told you to get out of her tree, then stay out of her tree. You know, where nowadays the parents would call up and say, how dare you tell my son to not climb a tree? And don't you ever talk to my son that way? And so we don't even respect each you know, other the other as parents. Is, yeah, I was going to say the other thing is that children, I know in our family anyway, we were always taught respect 
your elders. Always respect yeah. your elders. You get up when an older person comes in. You open the door for them. You uh, give them your chair, you you know, and uh, be mindful of how you speak to them. Nowadays, children don't have any respect at all for elders. No, it's really hard. And I think it's just as hard as, um, you know, I always try to, when I introduce someone, uh, adults to my children or my grandchildren, I always refer to them as Mrs. Smith or Mrs. Ed Jones Smith. or at least... You know, yeah, and, and I know you taught that to us as well. And so then the, the adult will turn to them and say, oh, just call me Karen. Just call me Kathy. And you're like, no, don't do that. I'm trying to teach them something. So yeah. anyway, well, uh, you guys, this, thank you so much for calling me and, and just helping me to reinforce the, you know, the fact that we need to let go of this fear that has been created by uh, the media, it's been created by, you know, uh, channels that we have, like Lenore brings out, you have CNN that has a 24-7, they have to fill the waves, the airwaves with something, and so, it, you know, they'll take, they'll take something and they'll just lob onto it and run it over and over and over again, and the way our minds work, we start accepting that as their, as reality, and we need to wake up and realize that we don't live in as scary of a world as the media would like us to think. And we need to let our kids just be kids and just, oh, I wish my kids had the, had the freedom that, and the, the wonderful experiences that I had, but even better what you guys had growing up. So, all right. Well, I don't say this to many of my guests, but I love you guys. And, uh, thanks for, thanks for joining me. And, uh, we, we for sure will be getting together soon. So bye bye, mom and dad. Bye. Okay. Oh, thank you so much. I hope that you guys, I hope that you listeners enjoyed the show as much as I did today. Uh, Lenore, please get online. Like she said, Google, Twitter, Facebook. You can get a hold of her. Uh, just type in free range kids and you'll get connected with her. Buy her book. It's absolutely hilarious and it's so smart and it's such good advice. And, you know, go home and ask your parents, how did you grow up? How did you get to school? What did you do in this situation? How did you feel when you got lost? And ask your, tell your children about that and encourage them to be independent. Encourage them to, to use their imaginations and, and respect them for who they are. Our children are brilliant. Our children are so self-sufficient. We just need to give them the opportunity to show us how, how, uh, independent and, and smart they really are. So have a good day. We'll talk next week. Bye-bye.